This episode of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Vitamix. Now, Vitamix is much more than just a blender because a Vitamix can make everything from frozen desserts and smoothies to nut butters and dips. You can use it to grind coffee or spices, and this one really threw me. It can even turn raw ingredients into hot soup in just six minutes. In fact, it's a fantastic tool if you want to get more fruit and veg into your meals, and it's great for plant-based recipes too, making it really easy to eat healthily. A Vitamix is simple to use, and here's the bit that I really love, easy to clean. But it's powerful too, and you can expect fast and professional results, which is one of the reasons why many chefs would not be without one. Vitamix have been around since 1921, which is 100 years of expertise that goes into every blender, and they are completely built to last. All in all, a Vitamix is a great investment, and I can absolutely vouch for the fact that it's a total game changer in the kitchen. To get yours, visit johnlewis.com forward slash Vitamix. Welcome to Life on a Plate, the brand new podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special guests about what food really means to them. We ask about their comfort foods and favourite dishes, their food memories and even their kitchen disasters. And by the end of each episode, you'll know a lot more about them. With me, as ever, is my co-host Alison Okavy, Waitrose food editor and all-round kitchen ninja. I always always change it to something more ridiculous each time. Um, How are you, Alison? What are you cooking? What are you craving? That's what I always want to know from you. What am I craving? Do you know what? I'm really craving lots of like spicy food and I've really been just digging out my cookery books and using the time to just go through and cook some really good Indian food, different dishes that are a little bit unusual, a little bit more time consuming and just really craving kind of spicy warming yeah, no, I, I I feel like I'm always up for that food, and I mean, obviously the the uh, the thing that we should reveal is that I don't doubt that that's linked to our guest today, who is Asma Khan, who was incredible, was an, a complete force of nature when we had our conversation with her, and yeah, she's she's you know that she's the, the the queen of that sort of cooking and that sort of uh, authentic South Asian food. She certainly is. I mean, ever since we talked to her, I've not stopped being able to think of, you know, I've done a lot of holidays in India and sort of wanting to just recreate some of the food that she spoke about and I had over there. So it's just been just really inspiring her food and her her take on cooking. Yeah, completely. Um, I mean, just to just to zoom out a bit, Asma is, of course, the uh, chef and founder of Darjeeling Express and acclaimed critically adored restaurant in uh, London. Um, uh, She is also the only, the first and only British chef to be featured on Netflix's Chef's Table. Um, She's an advocate for greater diversity, both in terms of uh, greater representation of female uh, chefs in the kitchen and also Asian representation. Um, She's always moving, never stops, Never, never not got um, enough time for a really long, profound conversation about seemingly small things. We've both met Asma a little bit uh, prior to this, but for me, I kind of was still blown away by 
just her just her insight and her passion and the way that she is so honest about not just food but life her own journey she was uh, born into this um royal family and grew up in calcutta where she was being fed in the palace but also exploring street food as you say she just um she blew me away it was kind of like meeting her all over again what was it like for you I was going to say, every time you meet her, she she just reveals just more and more of herself. But she is a real powerhouse. She wants to, she just wants to change the world, and nothing seems too small. Or you know, she's she's got a voice, and she wants to be heard and and to bring people along with her. At the same time, being really kind. Yeah, and one of the really great things about Asma is how she celebrates domestic cooks, and she does that in a really fascinating way and a really important way yeah I mean it's brilliant she's got an all-woman team and you know just to have women um cooking in the kitchen is really unusual for you know to have a whole team that isn't male dominated which is often the case in 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 restaurants most of them have been with her since the start they're a real close-knit family that have been cooking in her pop-ups and gone through the restaurants with her and just it's brilliant. It has the real feel of she's like a kind of figurehead of this movement that um, that goes m- much beyond food. But I can completely confirm, having been there since uh, we recorded this, that it also is unbelievably delicious. Her uh, kima mutton toasty, which I think was inspired, as she says, by a childhood snack, is honestly one of the best things I ate. Um, you know, last year. Right then, let's uh, get down to it. Here is our Life on a Plate conversation with Asma Khan. Welcome, Asma Khan. Thank you very much, Jimmy. This is very exciting. Asma, it's fantastic to meet you. You're you're a real inspiration, uh, not just your food and your cooking, which I know I've eaten and I know is delicious, but the way you always give something back. And it really feels like compassion and kindness is really at the heart of what you do. What's the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you? I think it was uh, when I was very young and it was my sister because, um, you know, I, it's incredible how people, you know, in, internalize the shame that people put on you for being dark-skinned, overweight, not pretty in the kind of conventional sense. And I was being humiliated by a relative about the way that I looked. And my sister uh, held my hand behind so that it couldn't be seen by others. And she kept whispering to me that you are Jhansiki Rani, who was a brave warrior princess. And she said, one day you will rule the world. And I remember at that time feeling, because my sister was the beautiful one, the fair, the slim, the glamorous, long-haired, graceful person that everybody looked up to in the family. And that moment where my sister Anna held my hand, I realized at that point, now it makes sense to me how important it is for women to stand by women. It's a fantastic answer and a fantastic memory. And it does, as you were saying, it does seem to chime with what you've done throughout your career and what you've tried to do with Darjeeling Express and the way you've uplifted uh, women in particular. Just to say, first of all, that um, you are in situ in your recently relocated 
much roomier and, as we may be able to hear, slightly echoier um, new restaurant. Uh, you've moved Darjeeling Express um, this year to a far bigger location. Um, just to explain the sound that we're getting from there, but also it seems a fitting place to speak to you. Yes, I mean, the thing is that, you know, no one really saw the pandemic coming, of course, or the devastation that hospitality would would face. And I had been trying to move out since last year because I was in a very small place. So those who've come to Soho to my restaurant will know it was very small. The kitchen was very small. And we struggled a lot, you know, to try and, you know, it was not a kind of badge of honor that I carried that people couldn't get a table for six months. It really upset me. I wanted to feed people. I wanted to have the space to be able to feed people. And it was really difficult for me. I wanted to move out. But it is really ironic that not a single landlord had any property to show me. And this is to do with bias. Absolutely. Some asked me, did I have venture capitalists now funding me? Did I have a business partner? And I was thinking, you know, how have I not grown out of this Eastern value of not having a suitable boy with me? This is a time when I can occupy the spaces that may open up for women, for women who are like me. And, you know, it is really a huge step for me to go into this space because when I went to see the landlord, incredibly, you know, open-minded they were, of course, you know, really suffering from the pandemic. The first thing I told them is, please rise above your own prejudice and your bias. You don't understand. You self-select. And I don't fit into anything, any category. You don't know that you can trust me. You don't think I will deliver because I haven't played golf with you. I haven't gone to school with you. I'm not part of your boys club. You put it so forcefully. And yeah, I kind of pity the landlord that was uh, the other across the table from you trying to tell you no, to be honest. I, uh, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not surprised that they uh, crumpled and gave you whatever you wanted, really. Take us on a kind of journey through your life in food. You came to food relatively late in, 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 you know, in, in relative terms. Um, you had a career, as we said, or you had a, you're on the way to a career before, before this incredible calling presented itself, as it were. What's your philosophy with food? What's your journey been? And how has it changed over the years in terms of how you think of food and its place in, in your life and in all of our lives? I think the, the reason why I began to cook when I moved to this country, where I felt isolated, I was drifting, I felt a disconnect from everything. And I realized that food was my way home. That when I cooked... In the aromas of my very Spartan Cambridge kitchen, married to a stranger, I had an arranged marriage. I felt the presence of Ammu, my mother next to me. It took me back. And, you know, and it's hard for us, you know, look at the technology. We're all speaking in this kind of high-tech world. 30 years ago, if you wanted to talk to someone in India, it was very expensive. There were no mobile phones. There was no internet. I had to write letters. So that isolation... You know, we had a word called Kalapani, which is the black waters, which you crossed and you were doomed forever. When you crossed the black waters that left your land, you were doomed. I took from, you know, my, my house a fistful of soil. This is what people did when they left home. And that is why it's so difficult. You know, when I talk to my kids, I realize they don't understand because it's so easy to travel you travel through the internet, you travel through, you know, being able to go on cheap flights. 
I took the soil of my house because I didn't know when I'd come back. And this was why I had to cook. And this is also why I'm still cooking 30 years later. It is the same passion, the same desire to reach out to someone else through food. I will never have roots or feel I belong to the soil unless I invest in the soil. I cook from the soil. And even today, one of the things that, you know, I don't do is I don't fly in jackfruit and okra from India. I use everything British. All my ingredients, I try to keep it as local as possible because I need to pay homage to the soil on which I am now. And whenever I ever leave, I will take a fistful of the soil from this country because this soil has made me what I am. I, and, you know, it, the food, the soil, you know, the, the ingredients from the soil, it was all for me very important because how would the, how would the land recognize me if I didn't glorify what it grew? And, you know, I, I, I always tell people I'm not, you know, I, ho- I have a British passport. You know, I'm not Indian. I'm not British. I'm a Londoner. I, I belong to the city, but the city belongs to me. I don't think I could have done this, an all-female kitchen with housewives and home cooks in India. The bias, people wouldn't have accepted us. This is why even today, there isn't a single restaurant like Dajani Express in India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. Because in every home you go to, there's an Indian Pakistani woman cooking at home. In every restaurant you go to, it is a man. Somewhere along the way, the community sidelined us. I want them to notice me, to remember my name and the name of all the women who cook for me. Yeah, of course. So Asma, you've mentioned about growing up in a palace, being born into royalty, and your family background, it sounds like a fascinating way to grow up. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it and uh, the reality of it? Well, it's not the kind of princess life that people see on Frozen. <laughs> it's impoverished uh, royalty. So, you know, we had, you know, crumbling palaces. These are actually white elephants. So, you know, you, you don't have the money anymore to restore and to maintain these houses but there is a realization, you know, so my father, very, very uh, left wing, worked for trade unions. My grandfather gave away the entire lands to the village so that they, everybody had land that they could till on and no villagers were, were starving. So, you know, I have a very strong, my family has been famous for actually, you know, giving back land to people, you know, very, very uh, socialist in their outlook. And I'm very proud of that, of my family background. So we're ironically very feudal and royal, very socialist all at the same time. And I had this incredible schizophrenic existence where, you know, I would walk into this palace and everyone would bow down to you as, as the princess. And, you know, and yet I knew and my father always telling me that, you know, this is a privilege of birth. This is your chance to change the world. Go out and make a difference to people's lives, you know. And he would spend, you know, where there were strikes and where, Workers got locked out. My father would be standing at the gates of factories and everybody knew who he was, standing at the gates till they opened the gates for the workers to go back to work. So proud of that. So it's royalty, but not the way that people think is royalty. But we had an incredible heritage of food. And to some extent, we lost everything else. All the kind of grandeur and the kind of uh, elegance of, of the palace. But we still had the food. We still cooked for villages. We cooked for the entire village. So when everyone got married, even when I got married, 
whole villages came to eat. And we still did that because that's the one thing that stayed. And that's the one thing I carry with me. So my royal heritage is really about being able to uh, celebrate through food, uh, but not in this way of, of being, uh, you know, something exclusive, but very inclusive. My family, because of its own politics, cooked the same food for the palace that they did for the villages. And they all ate together. And my father and my grandfather, we've all heard these stories where, you know, everybody ate on, on the same table, uh, which in Indian context is very unusual. But I'm, I think that, you know, I'm very proud of my heritage for this reason, not because of the royalty, but because it taught me how important it was to use privilege to reach out to those who are deprived. I really love the idea that you're using local British ingredients from the local soil. How are you finding that just affects the end recipe and the end dishes that you're serving at the recipes? Do you get any comments that there's no jackfruit in there? or People do ask me, you don't have okra fries. I said, I don't want a jet-lagged okra on my table. You know, I feel horrible after a 13-hour flight from India. Can you imagine the poor okra? And then the plastic and then the wrapping and the, you know, the, the moving it around. You know, when we use, you know, we make beetroot chop, which is a very, you know, housewife thing. And on the streets of Calcutta, they fall off the truck, but people just basically steal them off the truck as they get out. And they make this chop on the streets. They make the chop on the streets. I have the recipe from there. And I make the chop so soft, so succulent, so sweet. It is British beetroot from the fence in peak season. And it's so exciting for us, you know, and also that smell when we cut the, you know, we make aloo gobi mutter. So Indian. But the cauliflower is from here. When we cut it, there is that moist smell that comes out of the cauliflower. I can't, you know, please do not get stuff that is refrigerated, that is in cold storage and flown down. This country has beautiful stuff. Let's support our farmers. It is all our responsibility. I think that's a really important thing to say. And it kind of... um comes back to how you've been quite a radical force in terms of the restaurant scene and in the food landscape. And, you know, okra fries, I love okra fries. Everybody loves okra fries, but people don't really think about the reality of where that's coming from. And people need to understand the impact of what it takes to grow something, how something travels onto your plate and you being digging your heels in and being part of that positive conversation is, is a really interesting and important thing to be doing. I wanted to pick up on something related to where you're sitting right now, and it kind of ties in with some of the stuff you've been talking about. You were very adamant that at your current restaurant, your new restaurant, or the new guys of your of Darjeeling Express, you would be charging you know, a premium amount for your tasting menu. And um, that in itself was a political stand to you. And we can we can hear in how you talk about it that food is hugely political to you. I wondered if you might talk about that decision and, you know, why you chose to make it and how difficult it was to kind of stick to your guns, really, and just kind of, um, yeah, stick to that. The thing is that I've always noticed that, you know, food of people of certain communities seen as cheap and cheerful. 
You know, and you know, our food is not seen as skilled. Yeah. And you would pay 95 pounds for a French tasting menu, for a Spanish tasting menu. But why won't you pay that for, an, for someone who's cooking the food of Ghana, Tanzania, Somalia, India, Pakistan? Because somehow our food is seen not as skilled, not as sophisticated, not as elevated. This is racism. That's it. Because if you watch, you know, traditional cooking in Africa or Asia, and you look at the women cooking, the love and the patience and the rhythm that goes, you know, when they beat the, the cumin, the roasted cumin, they will, the women will chant, hmm, hmm, because in that roasted smell, there's approval. That is the love that goes into my spice. How can people think our food is not elevated, that it is not something sophisticated? We have centuries of tradition of cooking. It's just that we've been bad storytellers. That is our problem. And things have changed now recently with the people traveling, with the internet, with a lot more information available, cheap flights to India, cheap flights to Africa, and, you know, people traveling, you know, get a taste of street food. But I just think that there's still that bias. There's a very deep-rooted bias. And I wanted to introduce a tasting menu. It has, each plate has been made by hand for that tasting menu. Not to impress but in that layering of the terracotta and the porcelain that has been made by my friend, where I have sat with her in her studio while she made each plate, this is the frame of my dish. I present to you my entire heritage in this tasting menu. It is not about trying to impress you. It is about telling you a story through my food. It is asking you to acknowledge that I have the right to be respected, not just me, the women in their graves, the generations of women who cooked in villages, never got honored. You need to understand we are the hands that cooked. We are the storytellers. We are the custodian of recipes. Yet, we've always been sidelined behind the walls. And in many houses in India, the women don't even come on the table to eat. The men and the boys eat first. This is so wrong. We cooked, our food is patriarchal. Garam chapatis, garam, garam means hot, you know, hot, you know, rice things. Who is making that rice? Who is making that bread? It was never designed that we ate together. We were never equal when it came to food. So I'm, I'm fighting this fight. It's a war cry for every woman in my culture who cooked with passion and love, but had no glory. And in their name, I want you to honor Asian women and our contribution to food. Perfectly put, again. Do you have any food heroes that you want to elevate even further than they already are or kind of any unknown foodie heroes that we should be elevating? I actually love Andrew Wong. I think it's so interesting because he, you know, is unashamed of his Chinese roots and he talks about, you know, the red, you know, sweet and sour chicken that everybody knows, is interested in, you know, Chinese medicine, you know, trying to, you know, demystify Chinese food. I think, you know, it's so great, you know, I wish there were more chefs, you know, from different traditions who stepped out of their own uh, ego and, you know, what they were about and talked about community and their people and the food and the stories. I think that's, I love Andrew for that. I would love to see more people doing that where, you know, this is not about the fact that this is such an Instagrammable picture. You know, I'm the first who's come up with this kind of crazy idea. 
well and good, great for you. But, you know, let's also hear stories about, you know, what is this food? Why is this so significant? Because it is important to be understanding. You understand people through their food. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a fascinating case study in that he is like second generation restaurateur, isn't he? And his kind of family had a, a Chinese restaurant and he's kind of building on that and adapting that. And it's, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the first generation of South Asian chefs and adapting things to English tastes. And it feels like at this point we are, you know, there is more readiness for people to kind of delve deeper and give more authentic renditions of, uh, of national cuisine and culture's cuisine. Um, your restaurant, you know, having been there to the Carnaby Street guys, it feels like an extension of the home. You're there working the room. You feel like you're not going to leave unless you're properly fed in the way that you would hope for at a, at a, uh, at a very good home. And um, I, I wonder what food says home to you? Is there one dish that you smell it, you see it, and you're taken straight back to a particular moment in time or place. I think it's paratha because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the bread. And this is why paratha features very heavily in my brunch menu in, in the Delhi as well. We've decided to stuff parathas uh, because there's something so beautiful about, you know, this, you know, when the ghee hits the, it starts browning the, the, on, on a tawa, it has to be made on an iron plate. It reminds me of every meal where you wait uh, and you count because you know where you are in the pecking order. The boys come first and, you know, the girls eat last. And you're counting the parathas as you know that then at last, that final stage, there's that smokiness that comes and you know, okay, that paratha's done. And then you wait. So I would count it down. So for me, this is the thing that the paratha is that, you know, comfort dish, but also where there was this anticipation and waiting because it's not, it's not like a loaf of bread that comes out of the oven and it's ready and everybody can eat it. Paratha is made one at a time, rolled out one at a time. And that patience and waiting, and that is really, you know, some me home from comfort. It's also about, you know, it's a great leveler because for that time, even though you have to wait, you get to eat the same as everybody else, which is not the case uh, with other food because, you know, like I remember I always got a broken fried egg. So the cooks chose to give me the egg that broke because I was less important. And I, you know, it's, I only realized this later on when I, I was making an egg for my son and in London and I said, oh, this, I broke this, I'll, make, I'll eat it. I was like 48 when I realized I did not even realize that. But parathas, each one looked the same and you felt you were equal. So I loved it for that reason too. So is, is that what you'd say is your favorite food? What type of food is your favorite? You've got street food. You've got train food on your menu coming in Darjeeling Express. I think street food. People don't actually, uh, when you come into India and you look at the food on the streets, people are obviously very scared because they're scared they're going to get sick or whatever. But when you, I grew up in India and I understood at a very young age that the people who are selling food on the streets, they need to sell everything. Otherwise, their family doesn't eat. And they know that you, but people buying street food in India are mainly people who are very poor or that might be their only meal. They want bangs for their bucks. So real 
proper Indian street food is unbelievable. It is layered, it is textured. Plus, there's a lot of customization. He might be serving six people. Invariably, it's a man who's doing the street food. But he will ask you, do you want a bit of chilies? Do you want a bit of lemon? He wants to engage you that you will come back tomorrow and not go to his competitor. And that level of customization, I would tell you a Michelin star chef would hang their head in shame. That's why I'm not impressed by chefs in their stainless steel empires with every kind of machine and all the equipment and the money. They produce a dish. doesn't impress me. You go on the streets in Calcutta and you see the dish that is produced by someone who has worked all night in, prep, you know, in the prep in getting all of that there, carried it on their head through the slums and into the city. These people don't live in the city. They can't afford to because the slums are pushed out and out. They've carried it there. Then they produce it. The dignity with which they will treat everybody, it's so important because they understand what it is to be respected. And, I, and street food vendors are respected in Calcutta. People understand this. And this is why it's very emotional for me. I have a lot of street food dishes on my uh, menu in the deli. It's also there on my tasting menu. You know, I'm not doing scallops and poncy stuff. I'm doing street food in, in the tasting menu because I want people to understand that this is, you know, I come from a royal family, but India is a country of the rich and the poor. It would be so incomplete if I didn't honor the labor and the food of the poor. food that you like and the food that you rhapsodize about and enjoy uh, I wonder is there anything that you would like to never see again things that you're over or foods that you kind of are yeah tired of what, what are the things that that are prime annoyances for you I think I'm just like you know I'm not into avocado it's like you know nothing and I find the texture really strange I know I probably sound very Indian when I say this because it's neither soft nor it's hard. I tried really hard to like it. I really have not liked it and I don't like it. So there won't be, there won't be any avo, avo toast or avo, avo on paratha. You wouldn't do that. No, no, no. no. Toast is, you know, should have nice things on it, not avocado. What would you put on your toast instead? I would put eggs and I love kima. Kima, which is mincemeat. In, in our deli, we're going to have a kima toasty. Uh, so, you know, when we were, you know, in our school days, we came back from school, the cooks, especially the girls, wouldn't bother giving us lunch. So we came back from school at three. So the leftovers, they would put into a toasty and give it to you. And for me, it is always spicy, the filling. And that would keep you quiet till dinner time. So we never got lunch. If you miss lunch, you miss lunch. No one is going to give you lunch again. But you got these sandwiches and I love them. And it is, you know, especially the one with all the kind of, you know, the sort of leftover chicken curry is just shredded and put into uh, the toast. Ah, that's so good with chutney. You're making us insanely hungry, or me at least, uh, more than anything, Asma. Uh, you, uh, <laughs> you, you've mentioned the, the deli and the new restaurant. You were in a unique position some might say an unenviable position of launching opening a restaurant amid all this uncertainty and the changing um, measures and restrictions 
how have the last few weeks been? Were you kind of always firm that you talk us through the state of play with things now and how, how you've managed to get through it really and negotiate this period? I've suffered hugely financially. I stay up at night worrying about my bills, but yet I'm proud that we've closed, that you know people are not getting infected, that I'm protecting my staff and people because at the end of it, what good is just me having made money if I know that, you know, people are still getting sick and I have friends in the NHS who have worked tirelessly and people of my community and black, you know, people working in the, in the NHS have suffered disproportionately. And this is a genetic or whatever. Later on, we will know all the answers. My people, my community are suffering a lot. So things have been horrible business-wise very tough financially. Banks are not willing to give me any money. I put my entire life savings in into this business, everything I own, because yes, the furlough scheme is great, but that only helps my staff. What about my business? I had to pay six months rent in an empty business. And if anyone knows West End rents, that was debilitating in Soho, but I had to do it. And, you know, this is the thing that is very tough. But, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, be you know, think about the world and the community. So this keeps me going because, you know, this is part also of my philosophy. I, I tell myself that, you know, sometimes, you know, the greater good of everybody, you must put your own interest down. And that is how I rise every day and I survive every day. Despite what's happening financially to me, I will make it. I will make it because I know that, uh, there are so many people who have compassionate, who will come and support us, you know, who have been writing to me. I'm in tears every morning I wake up, I get these messages from people saying, you know, this is one sunrise. I'm sharing my sunrise, you know, a light and love to you. They don't need to do this. I don't feel alone. So even though the pain is very personal, surprisingly, I feel supported by a lot of people. I don't feel I'm on this journey alone. I'm on this journey with a lot of people. You're in the restaurant every day and and eating there. But when you're at home, what do you what what are you cooking for your husbands and sons when they're there? I don't make food into a battleground. So I have one child who loves Indian food and another who absolutely detests it. So I tend to make a lot of Italian food and I make Chinese food. I do pizzas and I do burgers. And this is part of life. You know, that a lot of people, you know, cel- celebrate me as, you know, an Indian cook, but at home uh, my child doesn't want to eat it. And it was quite a, it was quite difficult during the lockdown when I suddenly found myself not having eaten a single meal with my children for three years. How different they were from what I was as a child and how different they are from me. It wasn't just the fact, it was that moment like when they were three and a half and my son started speaking English and he had a London accent. I almost died. He's like, oh my God, my child has an accent. He sounds British. Because, you know, you know, I was like, you know, look at him. I was calling my parents and saying, see, say hello. This is a car. My son was just, all he could say was, this is a car. But the way he said car was like so British. I was like, oh my God, he's so British. But it was the same kind of realization when, um, you know, they were like, you know, oh, we don't want things. This is a bit too spicy. And, you know, I was thinking, oh, we don't like the smell of ghee. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to live this through because at the end of it, you know, I need to be able to eat a meal with them. And there were days when I thought it's easier 
to cook for 200 people who are so grateful. They want to take your picture and they take selfies with you. Then my two kids who were like so, so unimpressed with every dish I cooked. It was very demoralizing. And I have struggled to find a settlement with them. They do eat paratha, but with terrible toppings. Marmite, uh, oh God, all kinds of jams and uh, peanut butter <laughs> and honey on it. You're not supposed to eat paratha like this, but they, they eat it like this. I forgive them. I have to because they're my kids, but really they're just so, you know, I mean, I keep telling them they're so hybrid. You know, why are you like this? It's, you know, they're, they're Londoners and, you know, I'm... I've, so at home, you know, people will be so shocked. You know, I had someone, a journalist who came and said, you know, I, I, can I open your fridge? And I said, no, you can't. Because it destroys the image of this Indian food goddess. You open my fridge and you're going to see baked beans and all kinds of terrible things, which is so unlike anything Indian. But, you know, that's the reality of, of being a mom of two London-born kids. They eat strange food. I love it. I love it. I would like to be that journalist that had a look in your fridge just to see a can of beans in it. It's just brilliant. Are there any essential cupboard ingredients that you would have for you in your fridge or cupboard? I, I actually use a lot of dried red chilies. Uh, even in the restaurant, we don't use powdered chili. It's something that is really weird that you know people think that all Indians use chili powder. Chili powder, you know, you wouldn't buy from a shop. My mother would never trust it. She would say, oh, they colored powder red. My mother's very cynical. So she'd never go to the bazaar and buy chili powder. So the chili flavor, you infuse the oil with chilies. So you, anyone who's got my cookbook is using it. That is the method I've used throughout. It also means that the chili is layered. It doesn't hit you on your tongue. It doesn't hit you on your lips. It comes and hits you at the back of your thing. It's inside, it's infused into the meat because when you're frying the meat, the chili is sealing it with the oil. And when you put in vegetables as well, it is sealing it. Please try that, that sealing of the chilies. And then when the food is cooked, you take the chili out. Your stomach is not digesting chili powder. I have no idea why people cook with chili powder in Indian food. It's so unnecessary. Spice is a layer and a kind of amalgamation of lots of different textures. Chili is one. If all you can taste is chili and it blows your head away, you're a really bad cook. But the problem is too many men cooked our food and they use stuff from jars. <laughs> and I'm nothing against jars. Please do cook from jars if you want. But it has to be balanced. And this idea that, you know, I want the food to be super hot and super spicy, not everybody does. So, yeah, so it's, it's always dried chilies. And in, in my cookbook as well, I take people through that so that they actually learn to cook this way. Well, every time I speak to you about food, you make me understand it a bit more and think about it a bit deeper. And uh, as I said before, just ravenously hungry because of uh, the way you talk about food and the way you cook as well. Thank you, Asma, and goodbye. It's been just a real delight to hear more from you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Life on a Plate with Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavi, and to our guest, Asma Khan. To learn more about the series, please go to www.waitrose.com forward slash podcast. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.